0: You are listening to Mozzarella, the first Israeli podcast about product management. I am Shelly Shmurak, and today we are hosting Teresa Torres, who is the product discovery coach. We talked about discovery, what has changed in the past decades, about building a discovery mindset and a continuous discovery culture, and how to get there. Enjoy. Uh, so hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here. Great. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. I'm really excited to have you here. Um, Before you start, uh, for those of our listeners that uh, might not know you, um, could you please give us a quick uh, intro about yourself and what you do?
1: Yeah. So I work as a product discovery coach. Um, That means that I help product teams uh, make better decisions about what to build. Um, And that could be through a variety of methods, customer interviewing, um, rapid prototyping, um, assumption testing, um, just trying to help them get close to their customer so they're able to make better products for both the customer and the business. Awesome. Great. And and, and really, when we talk
0: about discovery, um, I know that it's a very vague term sometimes. So you've already said it a little bit uh, in your in your intro, but could you specify more as to what do you think is discovery?
1: Yeah, I think it's really simple. I think it just comes down to um, the decision-making process around um, how we're deciding what to build. And I think discovery has become an important term because a lot of companies um, really overemphasize delivery, and delivery is obviously critically important, but we're starting to recognize that all of our discovery activities are equally important. Um, So that's one component of it. And then I think the second piece that discovery tends to encompass is a lot of our discovery activities are really similar to UX activities or user research activities. But I think discovery um, adds this element of a cross-functional team approach to those decisions and those activities. Awesome. And um,
0: do you feel that the the world of discovery is changing or changed in the past few years?
1: Yes and no. Um, I think... 20 years ago, we got the Agile Manifesto, right? So um, from the engineering side, plenty of people were thinking about how do we work in smaller batches? How do we get customer feedback more frequently? Um, 20 years ago, we were seeing a lot of design firms do activities that we talk about when we talk about discovery. I think what's really changed is that we're seeing more in-house teams take responsibility for it. We're seeing more empowered teams. We're seeing more cross-functional collaboration Um, So I think it's less about we have these magical new methods and more about uh, companies themselves are getting good at it and recognizing that um, the team building the product needs to be driving those decisions and not an external agency, not senior stakeholders, but really the team that's building the product.
0: Awesome. And, And that team that is building the product is aiming to what outcome from their discovery?
1: Really, they're trying to move a metric. So I definitely teach a model of product management that is outcome-focused. This is also becoming much more pervasive across the industry, um, which is different from what we've historically done, right? A lot of product teams have been tasked with, um, here's a fixed roadmap. Maybe they put things on that roadmap. Maybe the leaders put things on that roadmap. But it's a very output-focused mindset of build these features by this timeline. Um, And what we're seeing is a shift towards Actually, a little, introducing a little bit more uncertainty into the process and saying we can't predict the future, we're not sure what you should build, but we know that you need to create this type of value, and then putting an outcome on how we might measure that value. Um, and I think what's important about that is that um, it's a mind, it's a pretty big mindset shift, right? A lot of companies operate on like five-year strategic plans. Um, we do annual project allocation. Um, and what we're seeing with the shift from outputs to outcomes is sort of this recognition that the landscape's moving um, pretty rapidly. We don't really know what's going to work before we test an experiment. Um, and so instead of dictating outputs, we're going to take um, abstract out one layer and say, this is the value that we want to create, and here's how we're going to measure it, and then giving the team the fr- the freedom to go explore um, how they might best reach that outcome. So I think if a team is doing discovery well, they're not guaranteed they're going to hit that, their outcome, but their hit rate should go up. Their success rate should go up. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. And what what is the team um, we, we're referring to? Uh, when we? What kind of teams are we talking about?
1: Yeah, so generally, um, I would say digital product teams. Typically, they're comprised of a product manager, a designer, and an engineer. Um, I've been getting a lot of flack for that definition in the last few weeks since my book came out. Um, I've heard from UX researchers, and content marketers, and marketing managers, and data analysts, and why aren't we included in that definition? Um, And what I'll say to this is this idea is really flexible. It's just based on the resources that you have available to you at your company, and what are the cross-functional roles that need to be represented in those various decisions. And so the vast majority of companies, what that looks like is a product manager, a designer, and an engineer. If you're really fortunate to have other resources and other roles available to you, then obviously each each team needs to make a decision about who should be driving discovery given the nature of their product. Right.
0: And I think I, I heard you say in one of the places that you were interviewed in um, that you defined that trio, but um, you can expand that, but it does come through uh, a price of uh, like the agility of it.
1: Yeah, basically, the more people you have in any decision, the slower you're going to go, right? so. Right. What are some cases where you might play with that model? So we'd know from just past experience and successful companies and successful digital products that generally the, the cross-functional roles that should be represented are the product manager that's usually representing mm-hmm. sort of the business mindset. The designer is representing the sort of usability and desire maybe a little bit of um, desirability. And the engineer is representing the feasibility I would argue all three are responsible for desirability and making sure there's true customer value there. Um, But we do see a lot of companies have the luxury of having plenty of user researchers. And if that's the Mm -hmm. case, they absolutely can be a part of that decision-making group. Or if you're working on um, a data-heavy product, you you might want your data analyst in all of your discovery decisions. Um, If you're doing discovery for your go-to-market strategy and you have a product marketing manager, you're definitely inviting that person in on your decisions. Um, but there's this reality of, like, you can't have eight people in every decision. Like, you'll just go really slow. You'll never ship anything. Um, I actually got into a Twitter argument with somebody about how they were really offended that the UX a UX writer wasn't included in that role. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about, I mean, I know UX write, writing is a thing, and that's a skill, and I'm not poo-pooing that at all, but I've never worked with a team that had a UX writer on their team. So that's why mm-hmm. it wasn't part of my definition. And... Even if I did work with a team that had a UX writer on the team, they don't need to be involved in data model decisions, right? Maybe if the data model is going to restrict the types of things they might be mm-hmm. able to do in the interface, which we do see that happen, but we, like, we're like grown-ups. You can't have every single person in every decision, and unfortunately, that makes people feel left out, but that's that's the grown-up part. Like, we all need to be grown-ups and recognize we, <laughs> we bring different skills and assets to the conversation and make sure that the right people are mm-hmm. represented for the right decisions. Definitely.
0: And I think that if we're talking about um, a situation where we're trying to learn the voice and tone of the customer, then definitely the UX writer would probably be there in those early stages. Definitely. Awesome. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, what does it mean? Um, What is this discovery process? What is continuous discovery? Uh, Let's try to dive a little bit into it.
1: Yeah, so I'll distinguish between um, one of the things that I really teach is this continuous cadence, which is different from what a lot of companies do. So because the Mm -hmm. business world historically works on this project model, right, we resource projects annually, teams pick up a project, finish it, move on to the next project, we've started to adopt discovery methods from a project mindset. So what that means is that um, a team might kick off a project, interview some customers, Um, do some affinity mapping, synthesize that into a research report, share it with the team, build something, maybe at the end usability test it, and then ship something and hope it all works out great. There's nothing wrong with project-based research, and there's nothing wrong with project-based discovery, but what we're seeing on the delivery side is that more teams are moving towards a continuous delivery cadence. We're we're trying to ship value continuously week over week, and so we want to see our discovery methods match that cadence. So for me, continuous discovery is really simple. It's how can the team that's building the product engage with customers on a weekly basis where they're they're conducting small research activities to help them identify the best path to their desired outcome? Um, And I think it's that continuous cadence of regularly engaging with customers, regularly testing assumptions, regularly exploring your customers' context, and And keeping open this constant discovery around I'm trying to move this metric, what's the best way to do that
0: and I'm assuming that if you speak to customers every single week, then um your studies would probably look a little different than if you do it once a quarter or once a year
1: yeah, like we can't we we can't do project based discovery every week. it wouldn't be sustainable, so mm-hmm. one of the examples I give of this is um Usually when we're doing project-based interviewing, we're interviewing six to 12 customers. We spend a couple weeks recruiting. We spend a couple weeks interviewing. We spend a week or two synthesizing. Um, you can't do that. You can't take that exact process and try to jam it into a week. We'll make everybody crazy. Um, so instead, mm-hmm. the idea is how do we make our research activities so small that it's sustainable to do it week in and week out? And so what that might look like is maybe you do um, a 30-minute interview once a week, and you're continuously synthesizing what you're learning. So instead of having this every six to 12 interviews, we're going to stop and synthesize. Instead, you're processing each interview as they come in. You're using things like experience maps, um, impact mapping, or my opportunity solution tree to sort of keep track of what it is that we're learning. How do we make sense of this world? Um, and you're just kind of continuously and in, continuously investing in your understanding of your customer and their needs.
0: That's great. Um when we do the more traditional kind of um, uh, research and, and talking to users, there's always like this step where you summarize all your, uh, all your learnings and then you share it with the rest of the team. And it's usually like an enormous deck with yeah. uh, all kinds of uh, quotes and, and focuses. And only preparing this deck would sometimes take a few weeks and then sharing it with the entire organization. When you do a weekly 30-minute session um, with a customer, I mean, how do you incorporate the communication of it uh, as as the way you see it?
1: Yeah, I think there's three um, primary artifacts that I have teams work with when it comes to synthesizing what you're learning. So the first Mm -hmm. is just how do we capture what we heard in each interview? So I have an interview snapshot template that I use for that. It's just a way... It almost looks like a persona document. The key difference is you're not summarizing across interviews. You're summarizing what you heard in a single interview. And I think that's a really important distinction because when we summarize across interviews with persona um, templates, we tend to summarize from the majority perspective. Mm -hmm. And so we start to leave out underrepresented folks um, or we, we represent underrepresented folks in very stereotypical ways. Um, And so, Um, The first artifact is really just a single um, snapshot of what did we learn from this person? What was their story? What opportunities came out of their story? Um, The second one is now we're starting to think about how do we generalize um, from an experience map standpoint? So based on all the people that we're talking about, can we create an experience map that represents the variety of experience? And again, it's really important to be thoughtful about we're not trying to um, sort of, represent just a segment of people but this map is evolving as we talk with qualitative research it's really about how do we uncover as much of the variety and the experience and the experiences out there as we can and then how do we start to capture that in a very um inclusive way and then the third artifact so the, the experience map is just capturing sort of their, the stories that we're hearing And then the third artifact is an opportunity solution tree. This is just a visual that helps you chart the best path to your desired outcome. And so we're taking the experience map and the interview snapshot and we're saying, based on what we're hearing, what are the opportunities that if we addressed them would help us drive our desired outcome? Um, And then the tree structure in particular helps us break down um, big challenging long-term opportunities into smaller and smaller opportunities that will help us find this continuous cadence. And what's nice about all three artifacts is that you're creating them as you're doing the discovery work. They're actually helping you do your sense making. They're helping your product team stay aligned around what it is that you're learning. And so they're, they're sort of doing the work activities as opposed to um, after you do the work summarizing activities. Mm-hmm. Right. And then it, ha- it's, it turns out because they're all visual, they also work really great for communicating with stakeholders what you've been learning. Um, so we're not doing two different activities to, like, do the work and then communicate the work. We're just using these artifacts to do the work, and they are also great communication tools.
0: Awesome. And and I'm pretty sure that w- once you do it in a continuous way and also you have those visual tools, it, it also helps you along the way in prioritization and other cases where you really need to understand where are you standing in terms of... Um, different initiatives and different opportunities that you have um to really understand your next steps um do you have like a recommendation of how to use those uh in in these kind of stages
1: yeah so um it this is a little bit hard to ex- explain without visuals but the what's nice about the tree structure is that it helps us prioritize so First of all, I really encourage teams prioritizing the opportunity space, not in the solution space. So what do I mean by that? A lot of us take giant lists of features and try to prioritize them and say this feature is more important than this feature. But really, we should be prioritizing customer needs, pain points and desires, which is what I call collectively as opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, And really thinking about strategically where should we be playing, what problems should we be solving before we jump into solutions. And so on an opportunity solution tree, you're mapping that opportunity space with a tree structure. Um, And this is, if you're familiar with decision trees, it's a similar idea that as you're working your way down the tree, you're getting more and more specific. So you're breaking big opportunities into smaller and smaller opportunities. And the advantage of that is that you don't have to assess every single opportunity you encounter. You can use the tree structure to help you prioritize. So you could start at your highest level and um, compare and contrast them against each other make a decision. And if you have three branches on your tree and you decide the leftmost branch is the most important, you now don't have to assess and prioritize anything in the middle or on the right. Mm -hmm. You can just work your way down the left branch. Um, And so it really, from a prioritization standpoint, it really helps with just minimizing the amount of sort of business case assessing and prioritizing work that a team has to do. Definitely. Um, So
0: how do you start when a team uh, uh, is not used to continuous mindset and discovery mindset? um, What is your suggestion for for first steps?
1: Yeah, the first thing I would look at is just can you increase the frequency at which you're engaging with a customer? Mm -hmm. So one metric that I like to look at is just the cycle time between customer touch points. Mm -hmm. So what do I mean by that? If you, in a quarter, in 12 weeks, you talk to 10 customers, Were they one a week or were they all in the last week? Right. So if you count the days between your customer touch points, how do you keep that number as small as possible? Um, The reason for that is that when I see teams engage with customers on a continuous cadence, even if they're, even if they have no idea what to ask in those interviews, even if they're not well versed in how to interview well, I mean, I do recommend you get well versed in how to interview well, but even absent of that, when we engage with customers regularly, we start to see that we have knowledge that they don't have. We think about the product in ways that are different from how our customers think about it. And it reminds us that our job is to close that gap. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with a regular cadence of engaging with customers, we become much more aware that we need to be aligning our decisions to match how our customers think rather than how we think.
0: Definitely agree. And I'm pretty sure that uh, even if you start um engaging with customers when you're not a very good uh, interviewer, you will definitely get better if you do it on a very large cadence.
1: Yeah, so um, a lot of people don't interview because they just feel really uncomfortable. They don't know what to ask. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of people ask things like, what do you think of my idea? Would you mm-hmm. use this? That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the advice that I give people is think about an interview as just having a conversation with a friend where you you met someone new and you're trying to learn as much as you can about them. So an interview isn't about your product. It's about your customer. And really, you're just trying to understand what's their lived experience. Um, and that alleviates some of the pressure of, like, I just don't know what to do. There's, of course, skill related to interviewing, and you can hone and develop that skill. Um, but I really encourage teams to not get too caught up on that and just start somewhere. I agree.
0: Do you feel like there's a difference between the product or company stage and phase in the way that the discovery process uh, works or will it usually look pretty much the same?
1: Yeah, this is a really good question. So, um, there's some differences in in pace, right? If you work at a really early stage startup, you're probably iterating through ideas much faster than if you work at a really large global enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say the methods, like I've taught teams in a lot of different contexts, a lot of different countries, a lot of different um, industries, and we basically use the same structure. The one difference is, is that my a lot of my methods assume you understand who your customer is, um, like you have a target customer in mind, and that you have a theory of what your value proposition is for that customer. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to have a product yet. You just have to have a theory of a customer segment and a value proposition For brand new startups or for enterprises that are launching new products, they may not have that yet. And that's where I would recommend that they do some work like with a business model canvas and at least get to the point where they have a customer segment and a value proposition before they start to dive in.
0: Okay, awesome. Um I uh four years ago, uh I think, uh you gave a talk at Productize and you talked about modern product product discovery and at the end you said five years from now, uh product discovery will look uh differently. Uh we will work in smaller size research. Uh, week by week, uh, teams building, uh, by, by the teams building the product. And, uh, much of what we are discussing here today is, as it seems, uh, uh, uh to be f- more, uh, coherent and precise, uh, in your uh, talk, uh, recently. How do you feel that the world have changed in the past four years in the, uh, in, uh, in towards your, your forecast?
1: Yeah, you know, it's I get asked this a lot. And that talk was um coming up on 5 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, really what I was trying to say in that talk was less about the world is going to change really quickly. I was trying to um I, that that talk I introduced my opportunity solution tree mm-hmm. and I was I was I was trying to find a common structure to the to the discovery work. So I had been challenged by one of the teams that I worked with where they we were they said Um, We're learning a lot of tactics and methods from you, but we're not sure what to do when. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to address this question of what what does the structure of discovery look like? And that's where the opportunity solution tree came from. So what I was arguing in that talk was that we should start with outcomes. We have to discover customer needs, pain points, and desires. And then we have to discover solutions that address those. And that I believe that that core structure is not going to change. That indefinitely, that is what discovery will look like. Now, the way we discover opportunities or the way that we discover solutions might change. I believe in that talk I talked about, like, at the outcome level, we had Christina's book, Radical Focus. I still think that's the best book when it comes to outcomes. Mm -hmm. Josh Seiden has a book called um, Outcomes Over Outputs that's also excellent. So we have a new book there, but not new methods. Um, And then in the Discovering Opportunities, I think I showed a Jobs to be Done book. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think jobs to be done is a great way to discover opportunities. We can interview to discover opportunities. we can observe people to discover opportunities um i don't I don't feel like our methods have actually changed that radically in the last five mm-hmm. years. Um, I think we're getting better tools and like more refinement about how to do those things well.
0: I agree, I agree, and I think um I think that a lot of the practices that you uh, share uh, are starting to um to show results, but in a, in a very slow and a little different way than expected. So I, I still don't yeah. see most product teams talk to customers on a weekly basis and, and yeah. small iterations, but I do think that we are understanding the discover the discovery process and the discovery tree uh, opportunity tree that, uh, as, as a, a, a more, uh, coherent tool in our process in early stages. So, uh, definitely yeah. interesting to see where we'll be five years from now.
1: Yeah, I um I really like the, there's a William Gibson quote, which is, um, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really true for product practices, right? So um, five years ago, I started talking about engaging with customers weekly, people used to think I was crazy. Like, I remember a distinct moment where I was sitting on a panel, I said that out loud and literally other people on the panel, um, someone turned to me and said, Teresa, I love your enthusiasm, but that's unrealistic. <laughs> Um, Whereas right now, that's not the case. Like a lot of people are talking about talking to customers weekly. I think you're right. The vast majority of product teams, this still sounds really crazy, Mm -hmm. but it's becoming more of a norm. Um, And for teams, if anybody's listening and that sounds like a crazy cadence, I really encourage people to take a continuous improvement mindset. If you've never talked to a customer, just start by talking to one. And if you're talking to customers quarterly, try to get to monthly. If you're talking to a monthly, try to get to every other week. Um, you don't have to just start next week and be perfect. It really is an iterative process.
0: Definitely. Um, okay. Awesome. So right before we 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 will finish, uh, any last tips you would like to share, um, with our listeners?
1: Yeah. So, um, if you're interested in learning more about continuous discovery, I did just release a book called Continuous Discovery Habits. I really designed the book to be a practical, hands-on guide for product teams who want to work this way. So I've been really lucky in that I've gotten to coach a lot of teams. What I don't like about coaching is that it requires that your head of product be willing to invest in you learning to work this way. Mm -hmm. And I really want to make it accessible to anybody. And that's what the book is all about. So if you're interested in learning more about this, um, I would pick up a copy of the book. Um, the other thing that I know is that when you read a book, it's hard to put it into practice on your own, but oftentimes we need feedback, we need to learn from peers. So with the book, we also launched a membership program where we do we have a pretty strong thriving community where we're supporting each other in putting these practices like into effect in our workplaces. Um, and then we have a set of courses that help you build skill in the different areas. Um, So if you want to learn about the membership program, you can go to members.producttalk.org. And if you want to learn about the courses, it's at learn.producttalk.org.
0: Awesome. Great. And also, uh, where can they find you if they want to read your blog or uh, reach out?
1: Yeah. So that's also producttalk.org. So if you just go to that homepage, you'll see all those resources. Um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and Twitter. So feel free to reach out and say hello. Um, I love... I really am um, passionate about helping teams adopt these habits. And so if there's a way that I can support you and do that, doing that, please don't hesitate to reach out.
0: That's great. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate your time and um, I'm sure that we will have questions. I, I can share it with you if, uh, if they're in our closed uh, Hebrew community. And uh, thank you so much for your time.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me
0: thank you all for listening to this episode with teresa we had a great time we hope you enjoyed it if you want to listen to other episodes of mozzarella you're welcome to follow us on facebook most of them are in hebrew please note that Um, you are welcome to subscribe our soundcloud service or through your podcast app And if you want to support us, feel free to rate us, review us on iTunes, on Facebook, Uh, tag your friends about the episode if you want to share the knowledge. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.